It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Hello, and welcome back to the aforementioned Ashes to Classics, our silent movie podcast, or silent cinema podcast, because we are quite classy round here. I am Stephen, and with me, as always, is our expert, the voice of reason, eloquence, and the informed David. Hey, David, how you doing? Good. Uh, I, I feel a little too humble to accept all of those uh, good, compliments from good, you, but good, 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 I appreciate well, them nonetheless. We'll see how it goes. Basically, you'll prove yourself in the in the ears of the listener as we go through. We'll see if you, you hold up to my to my words as we go on. So we are moving on to a, a new movie today, which the movie itself may be not the most notable work, but it's from an incredibly, incredibly notable director. And there are a lot of people out there who may not be versed in silent cinema, but if they have seen something, they may have seen a film by this filmmaker. He is one of the starting points alongside a film I'm going to look at later. But I would say, I don't know, there is one film here which I think, outside of the comedies, may be the most watched silent film. You know, I would say people are familiar with... A particular image, at the very least, from yes. Murnau, if nothing else, if even if they haven't seen a movie in their life, any movie. Yeah, the most alluded to. Yeah, there is an yeah. incredibly alluded to image in one of these films we'll discuss later. So yes, F.W. Murnau, or F.V. Murnau, I guess, because German. Yes, um, Wait, yeah, uh, F.V. Yeah, F.V. F.V. Murnau. We'll just call him, we'll just call him Murnau, because Murnau. that's easier. Okay. Uh, F and M don't kind of mix together, but just for the record, that stands for Friedrich Wilhelm. Friedrich Wilhelm and Murnau from now on. Excellent. Yes. So we're actually at the same position in terms of watched, but not at the same position in terms of knowledge. So Yes, yeah, so, since you watched Der Letzte Mann, you and I have seen these same exact Murnau films now, which is yes. wonderful. We're, we're basically on equal level here for once. There you go. Which are... Which are these six films? Uh, oh, should I list them in chronological order? You think? Oh, if you can do that, would be incredible. I, I would very much appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I can. It so would place them together is... in my head a bit because I've seen them sporadically over time without kind of like a, a meaning towards yeah. building up chronology. Beginning in 1922, we have Nosferatu, and we have Der Brennende Acker, which is the Burning Soil, the film we yeah. will be discussing this week. So the same year for those two. Yep. In 1924, we have Der Letzte Mann, The Last Laugh, which you just watched. Yep. Yeah, 1926, yeah. Faust. And then in 27, we have Sunrise, A Song of Two yes. Humans, from his American oeuvre, and capping off with uh, Taboo in 1931. Mm. It's a very One of the uh, last of the silent films that were made, that I guess you could say, by 1931, the sound yeah. films were very much in the swing of things. So that'll be that, that's kind of an interesting one. We'll go over as well when we talk about but as we've talked about before of there not being a clear separation i know silent film is liked to be placed as the past and the talkies as the present or the future but but taboo feels like a a very innovative film um do not be tricked by its silent trappings but there is some innovative and forward-thinking stuff in there maybe not representationally um but in terms of craft it's a really impressive film well, let's talk about it more when we get to it. Okay, I've got a, I've got a chronology here, a biography of Murnau that I'd love to mm. go over with you if, if you are interested. And we I can stop interested. at each point along the way and uh, talk about the films. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's let's go from the top here. So uh, Murnau is, as we kind of allude to here, perhaps the most widely acclaimed and recognized talent to emerge yes. from the Weimar era of cinema, as well as the chief example of German emigres moving to America and shaping the scope of Hollywood's prestige despite the rather sudden conclusion of his life and career. Okay. Murnau was a creative from an early age and steeped mm-hmm. his interest in numerous German philosophers and famous playwrights during his school days. He's a big old bookworm, basically. Okay. Uh, Depends which German philosophers, but interesting. Uh, that's a conversation uh, yeah. for a different podcast. Um, I mean, I mean, everyone studied Nietzsche in that time. You know, that one's just... Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Re- re- Regardless of leanings, he was just so <laughs> prevalent. It, it yeah, was yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've also studied Nietzsche, so I can't, I can't, you know, blame anyone for having done so. That was on my <laughs> university course. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a very good writer 
if a some interesting ideas, but an incredible writer. Yeah. Uh, Murnau also served in the Imperial Army during World War One okay. uh, and entered the filmmaking world as so many others had under the tutelage of Max Reinhardt. So yeah, that's this is the same kind of starting story we yeah. have for a lot of guys here. Serve in the Very war. Very familiar. Go go hang out with Max Reinhardt, get some <laughs> you know stage credit, and then eventually transition your way to the uh, you know pre pre birth. I don't know the the early film scene. Yeah. So yeah. To speak. Yeah. Murnau made an immediate and stark impression on the German populace, having secured early successes with noteworthy talents in the industry. In 1920, he directed two films with screenwriting credits from two of the industry's leading screenwriters. Karl Mayer and Hans Janowitz, respectively. Mm. The two had previously rose to prominence earlier that year, having penned the expressionist juggernaut Das Cabinet de Dr. Caligari. Yes, which is going to come up every episode. <laughs> Almost every. It's, it's really, again, it's inescapable. And that's why yeah. I'm, I am I really wanted to couch the whole thing and throw mm. the lens of all these figures because they keep coming up. The same people, yeah. the same films. And you can see that crossover here. The fact that he collaborated with Meyer yeah. and ha- Janowitz uh, is, is very important. Meyer, in particular, is <laughs> a, a, a key figure for Murnau. In uh, his book, uh, Krakauer cites Meyer quite frequently as one of the chief figures in shaping German cinema, crediting yeah. him as the author most attuned to the underlying sensibilities of the post-war German populace, with an entire chapter dedicated to his work in establishing the tentpole of so-called instinct films. Utilizing his most famous work for Murnau, Der Listenan, as the resounding exemplar. So there's basically, as far as when he I yeah. broke down those three types of films uh, that uh, Krakauer kind of categorizes okay. in in this chapter where he goes over instinct films, he he basically just makes the entire thesis about the last laugh. I, that, I, that's I, how influential. I can see why. I can see why. Is. Yeah, yeah, especially after that. Another important collaborator that uh, I would be remiss to not touch on with Murnau here is Carl Freund. Do you know Carl Freund? Not not by name, but maybe, again, you know that I'm terrible with names and noticing people. Um, you will know Carl Freund's work maybe even better than someone like Murnau. But Carl Freund okay. was a prevalent cinematographer yeah. in Germany who also ended up coming to America. Uh, he was an early collaborator with Murnau who would prove instrumental in his artistic success. He was the cinematographer for Murnau's first four films, beginning in wow. 1919, and would go on to shoot The Burning Soil, The Last Laugh, and Tartuffe as well. As an aside, Freund could perhaps be credited more than anyone else with the visionary perpetuation of expressionist imagery in film, yeah. working with the likes of Fritz Lang, Paul Wegener, and E.A. Dupont in their most famous German films before emigrating to America himself, where he shot and directed a number of the early Universal horror films. Oh, wow. So he was the cinematographer on Dracula, and Murders in the Room Morgue, and he was okay. also the director for The Mummy. Okay, so I've seen that movie. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, like, a literal direct connection, direct correlation between the expressionist movement and the early horror films of mm. the 30s in America. Like, literally bringing that same influence and the the literal imagery over from Germany in the so expressionist he, So movements. he didn't work on Nosferatu, but it's nice to have that that connection still then of, of, of the monster movie being reborn the different way. Yeah. He didn't, uh, Freund didn't work on Nosferatu specifically, but he worked on a number of other very expressionist okay. films like this. So, yeah. uh, in, in Germany for, so for example, uh, you know, I mentioned The Last Laugh, but also Der Golem. And he also, okay. most, most famously, which I, I hadn't mentioned here yet, but he was the cinematographer on Metropolis. Okay. Then yeah, this is, <laughs> this is me just forgetting names then, because it's a name that therefore I've researched at points that just goes out of my cerebral brain. Interesting. I mean, you, you in your Important. research, when you went over Metropolis, you may have like noticed that, but you probably didn't see all these connections. Again, the, the no, idea that he no, went no. on and was a pioneering vision of the American horror scene may have gone over yeah. and missed in research just because you're focused there. But uh, his influence didn't stop there. And that's uh, kind of very interesting cap on his career that yeah. I, I want to touch on here is that he also had a lucrative uh, impact on television in America. Okay. In the 1950s, he was commissioned to come work on and pioneer the influential three-camera system of live television production for I Love Lucy. Oh, he was the <laughs> he was the chief cinematographer. It's funny of when, I when Love you Lucy. say American television, I'm like I Love Lucy because so, that's, that's, that's the no, limited yeah, cultural export. I guess I'm like that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, and and it it can't it really can't be overstated how influential and how pioneering it was because mm-hmm. literally that familiar three camera live setup that started with Freund. 
in I Love Lucy. So Wow. Yeah, so from German Expressionism to modern television, modern sitcom television, you know, Freund's touches is... That's a lovely really... kind of, like, degrees of separation, isn't it? Of being like, I can connect blah to blah in three moves, and that's a, that's a hell of a link. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, even though we didn't really have a spotlight for cinematographers in this uh, series, yeah. uh, I just could not pass over the, the opportunity to talk about Freund for, see, for a little bit. I can see why, I can see why. Yeah, just, again, too too easy to overlook and too important to to do so and especially as lighting is obviously so key to the expressionist movement to have someone so clued into that it's an important name to mention absolutely so as we saw how the expressionist mode of filmmaking really lent itself to horror in america it also yeah. did in germany as we've kind of gone over it was one of the chief avenues through which this bold use of lighting and camera work really shined and Renal was one of the chief inheritors of that he, he got to succeed in horror very often very early as we kind of alluded to with not only Nosferatu but even his earlier works uh one of the earliest of which was the one of the aforementioned features from 1920 primarily Janus Kopf or uh the head of Janus okay it remains his most intriguing lost work. Both of the films he made from 1920 are lost. Uh, and it starred Conrad Veidt, who we talked about last week. Yes. Uh, and it was an early adaptation of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Ah, yeah, okay. You may recognize it. You may have seen it around. I'm just going to send you a link to it because the expressionist poster work for it is is very iconic. Oh, least, okay. That's, when, an, when that's, that's an image that I've seen. Okay. Yeah, so that and that's one of the reasons it remains very intriguing. Also, yeah, you know, just amongst, poster. you know, horror circles in particular are very interested in lost media. I, I find mm. yeah, there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of discussion more than any other. And so this is a film that often comes up in terms of that's, most that's why, desired. That's why found lost. footage is so popular, David. That's why they love the found footage. <laughs> so yeah, this was one of the early and notable examples of Murnau having success in the field of horror. But obviously, the most enduring example, the most noteworthy, the most iconic, the most recognizable remains Nosferatu, which is a hell of a movie. Which is a hell of a yeah, movie. yeah. Let's let's talk about it. what. What? How do you feel about Nosferatu? Uh, one of the early, I mean, as with most people, um, one of the earlier silent films that I watched out of reputation, out of a love of the horror genre, and I want to get to its kind of like genre roots, cinematic roots at least. And as a person who likes vampire stuff, and specifically the Dracula story, it's a a really good adaptation. Obviously, not literary adaptation because it's it's not Dracula; it's Nosferatu for for legal reasons. A really stunning film. Obviously, there are criticisms to be made that have been made from better voices than I of some of the the imagery of the Count in terms of linking to certain prejudicial and anti-semitic tropes and just because that's a read there i will not lend my voice to those because they're better to be searched from that side but a really incredibly atmospheric iconic film for a reason still sticks in my head probably because it's in everything probably because the scenes from it are in every movie ever um, yeah it gets perpetuated but... and thus become it, it feels more significant because of that continual have you seen the herzog iconography have yes! you seen the herzog yes. one? what do you think of the also herzog very, one i don't very love it. good um, i like it i like, I like it, it. There is there's a really terrifying scene in in the Herzog one where the vampire the Nosferatu just like attacks him in, in, in this corner. It kind of happens quickly off screen, and then the camera mm. catches up to the action there. And it's it's really well filmed, I, and I, that scene sticks in my mind. But I I do love you know it's it's not preferred necessarily, but it's yeah. one of those rare remakes of such an iconic and classic film where I feel like I can measure them against one another and it, and it feels like it you know, feels more inspired by but very much still reinterpretation of the source text being the novel as opposed to I'm just going trying to remake the classic film Nosferatu it is yeah with that shadowing over some of the imagery certainly but yeah a, a, a good version but not one that I love certainly um, of the of the many 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 Dracula movies there was many that I'd take over it there's a lot of interesting interpretations of, of, of Dracula. It's very interesting. Mm. And mm. Uh, I don't know, a few have kind of lived up to Nosferatu. You know, there's, yeah, there's certain, I'd say that. I, I do see certain critiques that there's a kind of simplicity in its narrative that, uh, you know, it kind of shaves off some of the more interesting aspects of the story itself. But it's it's the imagery. True, really but yeah, I'd say, but in a way that aids the imagery. It, it's a very image-forward movie. And I don't know, the metaphor and the poetry of horror is so often found in the visual symbolism as opposed to the wider literary textual symbolism. 
um, and it embraces that, or perhaps is the progenitor of, of that approach to, to a strong extent of the image forward filmmaking that, that gives the thinking to the viewer from that point of view. In some ways, I would point to it more so as a example of uh, expressionist filmmaking, kind of like, you know, the chief okay. text more than even something like Caligari because of okay. the filmmaking techniques that are used to facilitate a lot of it as well on top of the art design. If we see it as an influential genre that, that echoes through its own movement and beyond, then yes, because though Caligari is obviously such a this is expressionism, it's very much, apart from Mon to Midnight, a, a film unto itself. Whereas you're right, you can see Nosferatu's techniques echoing through cinema today and very much of the time. Yeah, there's a lot more going on. I, I think about the sequence where they use a lot of like cutting to have him moving the caskets around, and it's this very bizarre moment. Again, like, like kind of utilizing the medium and editing to create Which is this. fascinating as it came out the same year as the film talking about today, because I feel that we'll get back to it. I think I think a thing the thing we're talking about today really lacks is a variety of approaches in terms of visually of its lot of the same kind of shots framed in the same kind of action. And when it breaks away from that, some there's some nice cross cutting towards the end that I really enjoy. It's like, ah, something different. But the expressivity of, of conveying through not just what's in the frame, but how we can edit images together or something the burning soil lacks and something, mm-hmm. that, something that is certainly not lacking in Nosferatu. Yeah. So you touched on, you mentioned the kind of legal thing about yes. uh, Nosferatu. And that is something that has long carried with the reputation here that mm. I think technically could have qualified for making this a slot for a, a lost film that was saved okay. here. We could have covered, but... I've always been kind of suspicious of the story, the narrative, and and for those who don't know yeah, the story, you, I'll, you, I'll go I, over it here. Let me see if I can remember first. I believe the film was put in boats that were, were sent across um, and then put into coffins on those boats that were full of rats and then opened up and they <laughs> spread the plague with them. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Well, I did some research because I wanted to know. I wanted to know for myself. Yeah. I said, how verifiable is this story, This this famous legend that goes along with the supposed destruction of it. Like, again, I, and it was to a point where I never found any documentation that verified this, but yeah. it's just been so perpetuated as a story, so retold, and it's retold with the same amount of detail each time and each different iterations I could find it that I was like, I might as well include it. I feel like I have to at least convey the story here, even if I still feel yeah not entirely convinced that it, happened like this because again i i there's supposedly legal you know uh documentation to go with this but i've never seen a shred of it okay <clears throat> so allegedly bram stoker's widow florence balcombe learned of the unauthorized adaptation of her late husband's novel through an anonymous letter she received in the mail with it was an invitation to the film's gala premiere which proudly advertised itself as freely adapted from Bram Stoker's Dracula. And she was like, "What? The Coppola movie? How bizarre." <laughs> so, with the assistance of the British Society of Authors, Balcombe sued Nosferatu's production company, Prana Film, who ended up filing for bankruptcy during the lengthy 3-year litigation period. Balcombe eventually won the case in July of 1925, resulting in the German court ordering all copies of the film destroyed. While efforts were made to carry out this unconscionable ruling, such extensive elimination could not take place overseas, as Dracula was already a public domain work in the United States, granting the film complete license of existence and survival. So, that's essentially the story, is that uh, because, for some weird reason, the novel was public domain in America, the film could be shown still. And I... I don't feel like that's how copyright law works. I'm that's not really an weird. Expert. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I've never really thought about, due to my own ignorance, I guess, of the the disparity in nations of different copyright approaches of how that 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 could be the case. Um, but this yeah. is. I mean, this is the story, and that's also why Nosferatu as a film was allowed to proliferate so much was okay. because it was a public domain film for so long. Okay. That's why you're able to see that imagery appropriated and redone over and over and over. It's very interesting in terms of wider horror genre, isn't it? If you've got if you think of like the two Yeah. I would say the two most influential horror monsters. You've got the vampire and the zombie and you can you can go both back to the public domain spreading where it advertent or not. Seemingly inadvertent yep. in both cases. But it's it's really odd because at the same time the actual adaptations of Dracula that you got in 1931 had to be obtained rights because they were adaptations of the stage play that was being produced. Okay. It was a British produced stage play that was actually done properly through the 
the channels legally adapting it yeah. there. So it's it's a weird kind of you know echo seeing that there, but also again like I don't know the facts just don't quite add up for me, and I've never seen like if there was a legal ruling, should there not be like documentation somewhere? Should someone not be able to you know say oh look here's the archival papers here's you know the 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 documents yeah maybe I'm too gullible, but I when I hear something took took place over several years, I'm like well surely people knew those happening then that, that that makes it more believable to me. But you could just lie you can that up yeah but well yeah like it. I said this is. This is the story that I saw lots yeah. of times over in this kind of exact same wording, but just because the story is repeated mm-hmm. and it's repeated so clearly Very each time true. doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily true. I'm I'm still suspicious of it personally, but it's it's too good of a story not to yeah. tell. At the same That's time. the story we have and the story we've we've retold. So there you yeah, go. it's it's part of its legacy, and yeah. so I think it's important to reiterate here. Yes, Ferrati. So. Obviously, Murnau's career did not stop with such a high point, though. In 1924, he went on to shoot three consecutive productions for German's premier film studio, Ufa. The first of these was, of course, The Last Laugh, which yep. redoubled his international acclaim and allowed him an almost entirely free hand in directing his next projects. Do we know if the film was, was successful as well as acclaimed? Was it, was it a box office hit? It was a very big success. It was lauded in both Germany and, again, and especially the United States. Of all of these, The Last Laugh in particular was okay. praised and, and, and recognized. It was one of the big films that brought him to the attention and brought him over to America. I, I can see that because I feel like the narrative is linked to a lot of Americanized or American narratives of that kind of character, that kind of lens. It feels very culturally malleable. It doesn't feel kind of like specific, like a, a cultural like fingerprint. Um, mm-hmm. And those kind of stories I'm so used to, I guess. I mean, weaker versions of, but in American cinema, of that kind of person, that kind of situation. Makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I think also, again, the, the technique and the, the draw of the film, the gimmick, you could call it, of having yeah. no intertitles through the dialogue, I yeah. think really inspired a lot of people at the time. We talked, you know, last week when we mentioned it, that Chaplin and Keaton were kind of two people who were looking to create a yeah. film with his least amount in here at the same time as... German director who getting it down to zero basically. So there's, there's, a, there's a hunger set up for it, and then the film comes in to satiate that hunger. You're like, oh, there you go. There's the thing. That's what does it. Yep. So yeah, it was super successful. Mm. Uh, and as were his next film, Tartuffe, an adaptation of Molière's Tartuffe, which also starred Emil Yannings. Both these films, uh, actually, all three of these films starred Emil Yannings, as we talked about again last week. Okay. It was very, very prolific. They had a a strong partnership. A director actor duo here but they parted uh, and, ways later right but they parted yeah, ways yeah, later yeah, right the, good yeah good the, the last <laughs> yeah so uh and of course the last of those three was faust which uh was the most ambitious and costly production it's undertaken by ufa only surpassed by fritz long's metropolis the following year okay so yeah very expensive production but murnau's success was such at the time that ufa basically just gave him a free hand to do whatever yeah. and uh it, it did not make enough money really it was not seen as a success at the time faust but it didn't matter because they were they were just you know doing so well and again he was so artistically yeah uh, admired especially again if you've got the the literary adaptations bram stoker is an easier pill to swallow than goethe i guess of the it's not as perennial or as popular a text like well that's one of those you know Falutin books mm-hmm. for Falutin people, even if Faust is more a- accessible, I guess, for want of a better word. I know Faust is, is a really great film, and I feel like its imagery is not as echoed as Nosferatu, but definitely exists. But I feel like not in a way that's noticed as much. I felt that when I watched Faust, I was like, oh, I have seen things from this, but didn't necessarily know that it was Faust that I was seeing. Of the Murnau films I've seen, I feel like it's the one I need to go back to the most. I was kind of lukewarm on it when I saw it. Okay. I, th- I kind of found it overly theatrical again despite the big price tag it feels very yeah that's uh i don't want to say cheap but very costumey <laughs> i guess it is, is it is, is it is it is very costumey and i don't know so, while i love that in, a, in certain kinds of films it it just had not worked for me in particular for this one i guess it, it felt like it i should have been pulled in a bit more to it i found more believability in it and i just had not but yeah I, i'm certainly Keen to re reevaluate it. And you see know if me. My opinion I just like though. stuff about the devil, so I just yeah. I'm into it you on sure that do. level. I'm very into it on that level. Well, after uh, Faust kind of uh, floundered a little bit yeah. there, Murnau had a, a calling to go to America. As created again, a Faustian so many, impact of his own. Perhaps. So many, yeah, uh, maybe actually. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, before the completion of Faust, though, he had signed a contract with William Fox <gasps> to direct a series of films uh, in America. Yeah. The first of these is generally considered the apex of his directorial career. Yeah. Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Oscar winning. Yeah. It was not only a stunning artistic debut for mm -hmm. him, but it was a creative pioneer for the medium as a whole, both visually and sonically. Yes, you got a bit of sound in this one. You got some some beat, some sound, yeah. some sound. Yeah, again, it's it's a silent movie still, but Sunrise was one of the first films to employ movie tones sound on film system of synchronized okay. soundtracks. Yeah. So, interesting side bit of trivia here. This is a sound on film film. I'm glad you specified, because I was like, I'm going to not get this correct. So explain the distinctions here. Yeah, which which was something that was being tried time, because all sorts of sound technology was being attempted at the time. And the one that broke through ultimately was not sound on film. So in Warner Brothers, where you had yeah. films like The Jazz Singer, yeah. that was a sound on disc system. So, so you play a played... thing separately. Yeah. And yeah. you sync it up in that way. Well, yeah, it's 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 synced in, in that yes. way. The sound sound on film is eventually what took <laughs> so over. It's, so it's like how Netflix have approached to the commentary track to Glass Onion, as they followed in that thing. Uh, rather than putting it on the movie, you can listen to it on Spotify. There you go. It was it was just happened to be the most efficient, quick way they got to get sync dialogue to work properly. Yeah. So in a film like Sunrise, you don't have dialogue per se, but you have yeah. an accompanying soundtrack, like a single score that's attached, and you have sound effects added in to certain scenes to give sense. And that's all timed correctly with it. Yes. But it's all, again, it's, it's printed on the side but of it's the on film the, there. So, so the sound itself is, is on the reel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's 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 like played through. The information is played through. It's it's a, a technical process that I am not totally yeah, no, I, God, God, first God, in. God knows. Clearly it works because it's been working for a long, long, long time. Yeah, um. yeah eventually, it's, eventually it's what took over and that's how... Yeah. Again, even if you go see a film on film today, that's how it's done. The sound is... Printed yes. on the, like, the right yeah, hand side. People that have seen film, have seen little film reels, will have seen that. Your little kind of like, as we're looking at Audacity now, have our little peaky bits. You see the little peaky bits. Yeah, um, yep. so that's what's printed on the side there. So did, did that require different projecting equipment? Or is, is that one of the issues? Or I believe so. Like, yeah, obviously, they well, they had to get sound systems installed. Yeah, as opposed to, I can there was bring a huge... something to play, play the music elsewhere. So maybe that's an impediment. I mean, all, all, all theaters needed a sound system, you know, equipped in to actually project yeah. everything, including the sound on disc films. Yeah. Uh, so obviously there was a huge move throughout 1927, 1928 to equip as many theaters throughout the country as they could and do it. And, and some theaters didn't get it as quickly. And so they enjoyed a lot of silent films for a longer period of time into mm. the 30s. But yeah, it was a huge incentive, very quick to obviously revolutionize the the industry like this. But it, it did. Yeah. It was a costly and big undertaking. But it was a lot, uh, and obviously there was a lot of loss along the way too. A lot of theaters who independent theaters who could not keep up and who you know yeah. basically went under because they could not afford to take on this uh, system. But nobody wanted to see archaic old you know silent films. I mean, I I, I guess we've seen that repeated with to a larger extent with the advent of the multiplexes because the idea of the multiplexes wasn't it of if we have 20 screens then all the movies can play here and then it became what if we put whatever the current avatar is on 20 of those screens. And you're like I thought you said that there'd always be a screen for a little movie and then you know the little picture houses um get mm -hmm. squashed along the way and are now few and far between sadly. Though you know there's a bit of like a comeback of of boutique movie experiences. Yeah, interesting to see how that will shake out. Uh, yeah, hopefully, hope, hopefully better hope, for the hope, future. But hopefully, well, but it's one of those things where I, I have not know. been to a multiplex since I think it was last not not last year, but like the year before I went and saw whenever Matrix was out. That's that's the last okay. multiplex film I saw. Okay, interesting. Yeah, well, I guess you you are in the fortunate position of you've got a a local art house stuff that will play the more like your nopes of the world that you'll still yep. want want to see there. Um, whereas for me, I have to go quite a long way to see an art house cinema. So I'll go out of my way to watch um, things like Ennis Main, for example. But if I'm going to go see something that is in most cinemas, like I'm going to go see um, uh, the new Ant-Man because I'm broken in that way, I'm going to go oh, to the multiplayer so to see it. I, I've liked the previous two. Sorry to lose my crowd on this podcast, but I liked those first two <laughs> Ant-Mans. I am... Um, tentatively excited for the third so excited that i've not seen it at this point though it's been out for over a week so clearly not that excited um but maybe you'll be the first person i know to like it there you go I'll, I'll, hey you know me i'm happy to be the sole defender of something i'd rather yeah. be on a positive side <laughs> if it's mm -hmm. good 
Speaking of good, we can get back to Sunrise, which of course is, again, not only one of the most, probably the most acclaimed film of Murnau's career, but one of the most acclaimed films of all time. Yeah, not even just of the silent era, if that is a thing. One of the, this is on the A-level film syllabus as like key text. When we went over the sight and sound list, the newly produced one of 2022 last year, when we talked about in one of our previous episodes, it was the highest ranked silent film. It was in the top 10, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, still, which I wasn't sure that there was going to be any silent film uh, in the top 10. But, you know, if it was going to be one, I'd have guessed this one. And there you go. There it is. Yeah. So that goes to show just how prolific and influential is again it's good it's good most artistic academy award in 1929 i love the idea of most i think they should bring that in because let's be honest if brendan fraser wins wins he will win for most acting so it should be the most acting award i feel they should be most rather than best most that's that's me putting that into those those words there editorializing a little bit it's actually the best unique and artistic picture Uh, award well i think you've accidentally created an innovation where the oscars should admit that they actually award the most then it should be most acting most producing most writing i mean i'm afraid to see the aftershocks of that effect (laughs) yeah it's already happening Mm -hmm. so yeah do you have any uh additional opinions on sunrise um, I would need to rewatch it again with more critical eye. I very much like watched it with an eye to this is one of the key masterpieces of the film and I must have watched it. So I watched it in that box ticky way, perhaps more than a let me sit down with more of a knowledge of the medium behind me and a British level. So I more viewed it as a diamond as opposed to mm-hmm. a film among other films that is the contemporaries to them, if that makes sense. But my viewing of it, hugely positive. I think it's absolutely a great movie and beautiful, truly beautiful and a great dog. One of the best dogs. Good dog. Yeah. It, it is definitely terrific. Uh, incredible film. Mm. I am not as enthusiastic as a lot of people are. Uh, there are other Murnau films I like a lot more, including uh, Der Lichtemann. But, yeah, it's especially from a historical standpoint, I think it's very essential to see uh, as an early sound-on-film film. It's very yeah. incredible that way. Not the, not the first, I should say. That one is... Oh, oh. It's, I, I, I want to make sure I say it right. Yeah. It's a John Barrymore film. The Beloved Rogue or... Nope, that's the Conrad Veidt film from okay. last time. It's it's from 2026. 20, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head so I sound like a professional like you said that I was. <laughs> nope, nope, I've lost it. I've lost it. Let me let me just see. Let's let's see. Does, does Google lead us astray here? Bing.com says... First sound film. The Jazz Singer. It's going to say The Jazz Singer. It probably yeah yeah jazz singer is the first thing that pops up and that is incorrect that is not correct do not take the, oh my god I, I went to a screening of the jazz singer no no it was, a, it was a Buster Keaton's Seven Chances the other day which was wonderful to see with a uh, really cool a, a live accompaniment but I I couldn't help but feel like they did a uh, a poor job of introducing because they said it was the first film with color it was the first color film and uh, it is an early Technicolor film. Yeah. It is, as I kind of discussed on our Toll the Sea episode. It's say it's no Toll the Sea. It's no Toll the Sea. Yeah, but that's the thing. I was like, uh, it definitely wasn't, though, because the Toll the Sea existed <laughs> before. Me, like, excuse me, excuse me. I've seen a color film. I've seen a color film that came up before. It was, yeah, it wasn't even the first. That one wasn't even the yeah. first Technicolor film, as we talked about. But yeah, and yeah, so I was, I was kind of just like, I, I kind of grumbled in my seat quietly to myself about it. <laughs> it's good to be able to, though. It's good to be like, well, actually, I know that blah, blah, blah. Always a good position to be in. Oh, okay. I was close. So, yeah. John Barrymore's Don Juan. That was the first film, oh, first feature length film to utilize Vitaphone's sound on disc system. Matt told me that. I should have remembered that. Yes. I was close. Again, the b- beloved rogue is, again, it's mm. another. Don Juan is a beloved rogue, to be fair. Yeah. Well, again, it's 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 another Barrymore film. It's another swashbuckler. I yeah. was I was close. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Everyone, everyone knows you were close. <laughs> Yeah, I'm expert enough. I, yeah. I knew, I at least knew that there was another film that came before. You knew right? to know that Google was wrong when it said The Jazz Singer. Yeah, yeah. So again, again just another way that racist history has continued yeah. to perpetuate and warp yeah, yeah. and change things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not. And Birth of the Nation wasn't the first. Yes, exactly. And, it's, and it's, it's very telling that those two are the examples, because yes. Yeah. As a way yeah. of excusing them and defending them, isn't it? It's that way of being like, I can concrete my defense of this film if I go, but it's important. You go, oh, I guess it's important then. You go, well, actually, not in the way that you say. 
I'm surprised Gone with the Wind hasn't usurped Wizard of Oz's reputation as the first color film similarly, you know? I hear it's the first film. I hear Gone with the Wind is the first film. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to double-check that. Yeah. <laughs> so, back to Murnau, though. Uh, he made two more films for Fox. Okay. One of which, Four Devils, is lost. I imagine, since it features devils, you'd be very interested in that. I'm up for it. I loved The Devils, so you put three more Four. in that. <laughs> yeah. I'm up for that. So, that was his last film before embarking on a collaborative journey with the acclaimed documentary filmmaker Robert Flaherty to okay. Tahiti. Yes. And Robert Flaherty, director of famous films such as Nanook of the North, very famous yeah. early documentary film. I have film. not seen, Do- docu- docu- fiction. Document. Eh, yeah, yeah. There is some contention around how documentarian we Yes, no, I've, I have, I have read work. about it quite a lot. I have not watched it. It's the same with a lot, like even contemporary documentary. There is a yeah. certain amount of fabrication that takes place, and you know, and we certainly should be yeah. critical of how much recreation that takes place. And considering that, but it's again, it's not like Flaherty's work is an exception, even in a modern. No, you, you're true. There's, I saw a trailer when I went to go see Beauty and the Bloodshed, a recent documentary that I thought was was really quite outstanding. Um, there was a trailer before it. I forget what the name of the film was, but it was a documentary about documentaries. Um, and it was about that, basically. It, it tracked including Poop Dreams and one of the Netflix docs, I think The Staircase? I've not seen it, it's not for me. But it was combining those stories together, talking to people from them and being like, okay, so how are you documented? How's that matter your life? What about documentary ethics? And I was like, oh, man. But then, who knows? Maybe there'll be a, a thing about the documentary documentary in years to come. But that's the thing. I bet it's very self-aware, though. I want to, I do want to see it. Just probably learn what it's called first before I see it. I'm reminded as well of the controversy surrounding the Anthony Bourdain documentary. I was just about to say, yes. Yeah, so again, I, it, the genre is by no means free from these constant scrutinies and concerns over authenticity. Mm-hmm. And that's been the case since the beginning. So, yeah. uh, you know, it'll continue. And certainly something we shouldn't ignore, but... Doesn't mean that we should dismiss out of hand. I know. I, I am. Wo- I'm an absolute yeah. lover of documentaries, as are you. Um, Flaherty is a is a vital film figure that is also worth discussing and yeah. considering as well. And uh, yeah, the fact that he had a collaboration with Murnau is very interesting. Yeah. Although it it did not necessarily go well, I will say. Okay. <laughs> they traveled to Tahiti, where they intended to shoot a docufiction feature. Yes. Which had an entirely native cast. Yes. This would evolve into the film Taboo. Yeah. Which is, uh, I think, one of his most interesting films. I know there's certainly some contention, reservation, and uh, consideration that we both have here for it. But uh, I, I actually, in my memory, favor it quite a bit. Yeah, I remember liking it. I remember, like, seeking the discomfort because I'm like, I don't know enough about the bits around this. And I am not the most educated or best positioned person to talk on this. And there are elements of it that cause me kind of like instinctive discomfort but then there are huge artistic merits to it kind of like as a piece of filmic rather than like this is really quite wonderful it should be noted as well that i believe that murnau and flaherty were the only non-native producers on here as well like even the production you know utilized native members like so, yeah, yeah, for so, the, so, the camera work and all so that done, done by the indigenous population yeah yeah of course under in, instruction and being taught and such but there there is an argument to be made for yeah, it's a diff- some, some behind the camera. Again, it's it's not. It's, in a, it's, like a, it's a, a, a difficult one, isn't it? I don't, and I don't think we're either equipped nor this is the place to really talk about the complexities there. Not to duck away from the issue, but it is yeah. definitely worth alluding to that there is this whole thing that I think is worth going into, of because it's always going to be an outsider lens, and there is always that degree of. And then when instructing others to create your vision, there is a colonialist dynamic there as well, um, which which is hard to avoid. Then there's also the sense of allowing people, given the tools, and film is not just a strictly altered medium. People are are creating and and collaborating on a thing and creating a perception of themselves from themselves, which is why it's a thorny film and a homens discuss. And the story itself is very obviously a kind of western narrative that is placed upon an indigenous population but it is one that strives for a kind of universal ideal yeah a kind of universal messaging for the characters there which is again interesting and it it applies nuance to it there that makes it kind of feel progressive in a sense and again kind of displaying the characters authentically in that way it is trying the 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 film is certainly trying and goes out of its way to try in a way that perhaps you would not expect a film from the time with those power dynamics to do Mm -hmm. 
So it is very interesting. I think worth checking out. It's a very well-made film. Yeah, as well. it's yeah. As I said, as I said earlier, alluding to, it feels deeply innovative um, in terms of the things that it is doing. How visually resplendent it is. Some stuff with cameras, especially as a, at a time where maybe speaking as an idiot here, but I guess people are perceiving silent film to be a bit backwards or a bit the film of yesteryear as we are moving towards the talkie. Yeah, I mean, it's coming out in 1931. The only other. Yeah. Really nominal silent film that came out that year was Chaplin's City Lights, which okay. even itself was in conversation with talking films taking over yeah. in some of its gags. So very much so, this is like the last hurrah for, for silent films. The last laugh. And it, yeah, and it was one, unfortunately, that Murnau did not get to see out because okay. he died a week before the film was set to premiere. Yeah. He died in a very horrific and sudden car accident a week before the film's premiere. His body was shipped and buried in Germany at a funeral service to attend by Flaherty and Emil Jannings and Fritz Lang delivered the eulogy. So it's kind of a sad cap here. I think it's important to touch on some of the grievous misgivings that have gone on about his death since. There has been a lot of horrible allusions to the cause of his death and linking it to his openly gay orientation okay. that he, he presented both in Germany and Hollywood during his life the kind of most horrific of which were alleged in the heinous tabloid posited by Kenneth Anger in his book, Hollywood Babylon. Yeah, okay, which I've not read, um, but obviously I'm uh, very, very yeah. aware of. Yeah, it's I know, an, an interesting text to see how the these kind of myths and, uh, you know, horrible gossip was perpetrated decades after about yeah. a lot of these figures, especially in the silent era, where basically you could just make up whatever, and there was no record yeah, and no existing... Yeah. You know, uh, people to. I to do kind of need to read that. that because I am a big fan of Kenneth Anger as a filmmaker. Um, uh, if if you're not interested in going and reading it, I would highly encourage. Well, checking I am. Out... I, am. I will. Okay. Yeah. Well, I I would also, as a supplement, then encourage to check out the podcast series. You must remember this from Creed okay. Longworth, uh, where she has a whole season where she goes over and picks apart the allegations in Hollywood Babylon against many of the people and really indicates whether they are true or not or yeah. how much they are right, how much they aren't, and the actual story that is behind these rumors and myths. I remember... It's, it's a very fulfilling series. Leaving leaving the film Babylon, and there was a question from one of the people that I was with being like, so so I kind of get why it's called Babylon because there's a degree of excess, but is that kind of thing? I was like, well, actually, it's also because of this, and like, that's not a thing that most of the audience is going to know, but never mind. Just something being like, do they expect me to know that? I'm like, I guess kind of yes, but maybe no, I don't know. About specifically intolerance? Um, no, I think, I think specifically the alluding to the it, it being a huge kind of like hyperbolized scandalous portrait of Hollywood at that time and it linking to the name of that book which is known to be that. Well the name of the book obviously then comes from it's, it comes as a centerpiece of mm. the leftover Babylon yeah, set from Tolerance. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which according to Anger, but again not in reality, stood around for a, a decade or so and just kind of rotted as in the facade of this and it kind of stood as the the corruption of Hollywood and the degradation. Is that one of the sections of intolerance that's also released as its own film? Because aren't two of them released separately? Yeah. Okay. It's, I, I it's might one, watch it's one those. of the big sections. Yeah, because well, I obviously did not like Intolerance very much, but that Babylon no. sequence has some stunning bits in it. I'd quite like to watch it by itself. I might go back. It's it's a big movie. It's yeah, it's, that's, it's too big. That, that's what I'll say. <laughs> yeah, far be it for me to you know revisit any Griffith stuff. I could, should just ignore really, but I am tempted to go back and see some of those pieces without the baggage of that film weighing them down. I, I think we'll have to cover him in some point yeah. if we continue doing this in, in a certain capacity. Yeah. Just at the very least to contend with that legacy because... To as write, much write as we, some history and lightning, you know. Well, as, as much as we want to leave it behind, it is important to contend with and value mm. because it has been so impactful. Yeah, as long as it's not a starting point, I agree, which was well, well, oh, yeah. we've done that there. Yeah, as, as a thing to then double back to and go, oh, uh, yes, and Griffith. Cause, yes, because yeah. we cannot pretend he doesn't exist because obviously he is a huge influence over over how films are being yeah. spoken about at least for about 100 years. Mm -hmm. I got plans, don't you worry. Okay. So, just to, to finalize here with Murnau, though, before mm. we move on to the movie, here's kind of odd uh, Captain here. I know that last bit was a little sad, and this certainly still is, yeah. but uh, also kind of weird, kind of weird. I've got some more modern news for you about Murnau. Oh, God, Maybe what? you know about this. <laughs> is he being cast as a CG version of himself, like James Dean? No, worse. In 2015... Worse? 
Yeah, yeah, worse. In 2015, Murnau's skull was stolen from his grave Whoa. in what appeared to be some kind of a cult ritual of like, some sort. Like based Jeremy on Bentham's head. Like Jeremy Bentham's head. Yeah. There was apparently leftover wax residue discovered at the site, and it still hasn't been recovered. Nobody knows where his skull is. Nobody knows what happened. Some Faust stuff missing. going on. Some Faust stuff is going on. Yeah. I don't know. I, I included this because... Again, it's it's more modern news, and it's kind of relevant ties in, and uh, I think goes to show how lasting his legacy is, and those ties with horror. I think they 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 seem to connect back to whatever this incident was. Horror there's, fans there's are very weird. Little information horror still. fans are weird. Yeah, it's upsetting and uh, horrible, and uh, not not something that <laughs> I certainly endorse or, or want to see, but. Uh, I thought interesting to include nonetheless. Okay, Byron-esque. I mean, obviously Byron was dead by this point, but are we all sure it wasn't Lord Byron? He did do this kind of thing. It's interesting. This is not the only story of uh, <laughs> silent movie history grave robbing. There was also a uh, chaplain's body was stolen like a couple months after he was buried in the 70s and held for ransom. Anyway, let's talk about, as much as we can anyway, yeah. the Brennan Acker or the Burning Soil. What did you think of this movie, Stephen? I don't hate it, which is always my favorite starter. Um, it's I don't know. It's it's one of those archetypical setups, isn't it? Of there is a clear two-sided dichotomy. So you've got this clear. Here is the the what you'd think is the landowning rich family, and and here are the peasants that toil over that land. And it deals with the idea of being like you are from some land to own some land. Don't forget the land that you are from. So it, it speaks loudly of its metaphors about allegiances to land as a physical thing and as a metaphorical thing and it's someone is brought up in in that community among the peasants and he's a bit of a looker and gets his way into the the ruling class of this little microcosm um just so he can get his hands on the land the titular land this burning soil which is called the burning soil well maybe because there's some burning later but because mm -hmm. there is oil underneath it i mean Clearly, Paul Thomas Anderson has seen this film. Clearly, it is kind of like an underpinning text on The Will Be Blood. Though obviously, The Will Be Blood is based on a, on a novel, so maybe not. Maybe it's cinematic realization, perhaps. It's in the legacy of these kind of land films. Yeah, you, you could call yeah them. Chinatowns in the world. Yeah, also uh, another obvious text that this kind of leads into that I saw many allusions to was uh, Eric von Stroheim's Greed. Not which, seen uh, Greed. Okay. While, while not about oil is about, about greed. greed. Yeah. Yeah. It's about greed in the same way that this film is. Same way something like There Will Be Blood is. Yes. And it's very much linked with that and these kind of power dynamics, these interfamilial dynamics, you know, these these conflicts that come up between them there and, and these and how those manifest. It's an easy framework with, dare I say, easy stakes. And I think for a short-term film, it would work. And I got really quite bored by this film. Yeah, I quite like it's it kind visually. Of, it feels odd to say. It's kind of like, oh, in a shorter film. The film's only about an hour and 40 minutes. Feels longer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, when we've been talking about hour-long films, you know, mostly lately, mm -hmm. it's... It definitely has that forty minutes. Definitely adds on quite a bit, and then yeah. also uh, the the film itself is just it feels very lethargic to get through. And I think so and... much of that is for its expression. It's it's lots of like mid or wide shots or full shots, I guess, rather than wide of just some characters in that same room having a very similar conversation. It doesn't speak very dynamically apart from at points where it, there is as mentioned earlier some nice cross-cutting towards the end between the two situations that i found quite visually interesting um and i like the base plot the dynamics obviously work it's just maybe i've been spoiled by so many other films that are so basically this kind of structure um that i find it hard to appreciate this on its own terms I don't know, I'm kind of in the same camp with you because like yeah i can point to almost every facet of this film and say that is quality filmmaking there. There's yeah. a certain degree here. The set design is particularly interesting and evocative. Yeah. The blocking of actors and the direction, their expressions, their acting is all yes, very good. Yes, the acting good. is very good. It's very, very yeah. good. Quite natural. Yeah, and so there's all great merits here, but it just doesn't communicate to being a kind of coherent and compelling film, it feels like, ultimately, despite the fact that you can point to basically every facet and say that they are they are strong components of filmmaking here and it's very odd and it almost feels like is there something wrong with me am i, I, not I, I had this exact thought i'm like i'm like am i too dumb for this like am i the problem is this just like i don't have my my modern attention span has ruined me on this kind of film <sighs> oh and and i'll say as someone who has 
been pretty consistently watching silent films lately. Lots of stuff, just even for yeah. my own interest, not just for the, the podcast here. There are certain films that definitely feel just a little alien, a little, yeah. you know, uh, kind of textile. But to me, that speaks less to the sense that, oh, I'm not engaging with this right, and more so that there there are just less compellingly made films. Because obviously there are so many silent films, so many films yeah. that just stand out and compel and engross and magnetize in spite of any kind of old archaic way of uh, interacting with the audience. I mean, you're right. I'm just always like paranoid and like, am I liking this because it befits my modern sensibilities? Um, is, is, is it a recency, a kind of recency bias? Do I like The Last Laugh so much? One, because it's brilliant, but because I can see some contemporary feeling filmmaking in it because it, it was an influential text and therefore built a lot of the grammar of filmmaking. Um, so uh, it's, it, but then I can't, I can't not fill up film that way because of the, the living context that I have. Yeah, I don't know. Again, there's... I could point to another uh, a number of examples of not just great and influential silent mm. films, obviously, but even more kind of mediocre or middling ones that I'm still taken with and I kind um, of watch more, and interest. More even ones we discussed on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. Like, we we were at least invested enough in something like Algol yeah. to kind of... To, to, to maintain an interest with, even as the storytelling there was pretty belabored as well, there was still a certain amount of compelling narrative it's a more compelling film compelling character yeah and this simply was i th- i think it lacked a lot of character yes especially certainly. that was a big big thing for me which was also a complaint we had about algol but there was at least a certain kind of archetypical representation. i was about to say i think the, the archetypes in algol are more interesting and more unique to their narrative which in this one i'm like i don't know it felt very novelistic in that sense of this feels like a victorian novel like boiled down to just its like spark note summary have been like this is the poor family this is the rich yeah. family this person's married into this but actually he's betrayed the bit when oh, out of nowhere I, I don't know if this is a bit wrong but when they're just like well this woman's died by suicide i'm like okay well that, again there's a little like that's how little care there is for these as anything but narrative pieces to push the avarice storyline to push the greed storyline yeah i think some of the the failings also come from a very confusing beginning. I don't know if you had this same experience, but the, I... the beginning's very atmospheric, though. The beginning's very, very cool. Yeah, I just I don't know exactly what happened. Was that a framing device I... with the with the spinsters and everything talking about telling the story? Is, is... I, I felt like it was, but then it never kind of like I don't know my reading. Transition? My reading of it I don't, is I don't just know. like I literally this is don't know what a, happened. A, a tragic framework of the devilish things that happen. This is stemming maybe a, a, a thematic grounding of this is a tragic arc where devilish men will do devilish things at the expense of others. I did like the setting. I did. I really actually quite liked that first movement, and I feel it kept me compelled in the atmosphere of the film, which I like. And there's some amazing wide shots of the outside or that building in the distance, which I think are really beautiful that I think got me a bit more. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other big things that contributed to the compelling atmosphere of the film here was a a really good score. The score is excellent. The score is really incredible. Yeah, uh, which, again, is not something that is necessarily inherent to the film. No. I don't even know the score. I, I think it was composed later because, like, the last five minutes don't have yeah, a score. Yeah, don't exist. No. Which, which, I, which I was surprised to see. I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's done. Feels, but feels done now, I guess, yeah. It's, it's very atmospheric. It's very reserved. Uh, it's very, I think, string and piano-focused. Oh, it's God, very kind some, of minor key set. beautiful string stuff towards the end. There's one great, like, solo violin piece that's like... It reminds me that how important music is to film of, I kept thinking, the reason why I'm invested or feeling tense or anything is 100% the music, the way it intertwines with the image, but without this here, there is nothing inherently pulling in to this motion picture. The sound, yeah. The, whoever did this score and whenever, it is a very, very effective scoring of the film. It relies on the visuals, um, but it accentuates them beautifully. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I feel like it's so hard to give credit when, when it's a good score that's carrying so much of it i i mean it was already like i was already checking out a lot of times watching yeah but it, if not for the score i don't know it was yeah it, it felt like hard to get through and it feels like we're ragging on the film a lot i ostensibly I like, like it but i was impressed by bits of it i'm glad to have watched it i'm glad you are because ultimately i just felt so unable to find a, an entry point in even yeah it was from, difficult from the beginning there are it, visuals yeah, in it, my mind, though, that I still I, I can still conjure up more so than the right. previous films we've watched. Oh, I, I get, there, there's things like uh, in, you know, certainly more than the last film, different from the others, yeah. which is just was so plain, was so plainly shot, and, you know, kind of chopped up. 
but I don't know, the, the, the expressionist stuff of Algol and uh, From Morn to Midnight will definitely stick with me more. Because that's, again, that's another thing here, is that there's, like, no expressionist touches. Not that everything from this time period was expressionist, but well, there's, there's, there's especially when you compare arched, this directly... Those arched interiors are so cool and do feel quite expressionist. The interiors are very good. Like, yeah, I love the, the set design was really good. That space inside the house felt... Very I evocative. Love the shots of just the the fields and like the just you can you can feel the there's a texture. It is a little bit Thomas Hardy to me. I don't know. It it, it does feel Victorian novel that I can feel the grit in my fingernails. But I sometimes I have to recuse myself. Like I am not the genre person for this. This is not my narrative or genre. But there are things that I can maybe I'm forcing myself to appreciate it. But I still think there are things you can find to appreciate it. Yeah, and I will say that of all of the genres of, of silent film, dramas are definitely the ones that seem to have the hardest time mm. to get back into. There's there's less accessible entry points, you know, because it just... It... Is it because dramas are helped by dialogue more, I guess, of... I don't know. There, there is a lot of dialogue in the film, there is. Said too. A lot of comedic... And again, with a lack of, like, really investable characters... Uh, it, it all feels so kind of alienating. So it's hard. But again, there are so many great dramas. Some of the best dramas I've seen are silent dramas. Hmm. Uh, again, like we, we can just point to even Sunrise from a Murnau example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I I don't see as much of Murnau in here, I guess, as I do in so many of his other films. So many, because even in the later American features, even something like Sunrise still retains that expressionism. Yeah. Even more than a lot of the other expressionist directors who went over and made American films. And so when this film seems to have none of that, in the same year it, that he produced something so defining as Nosferatu, it feels very odd as, as a comparison. I think yeah, that's always the footnote to make, isn't it? Of it, it's, it's all well and good to be like, ah, oh, you know, this is maybe a bit of its time, blah, blah. But it is it is the same year as one of the most like indelible, iconic, and long-lasting films Never yeah. mind silent films. Films. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, there's so much of that. Again, I can point to individually and say evaluatively, that's very mm -hmm. good. That's very well done. But it it just adds to a hole that I just could never find myself caring about investing in. Or I ostensibly like agree. Trying to understand. Yeah, which again feels it's it's always kind of regrettable to make these the feature films. You know, kind of going in blind and not knowing if yeah. these are going to be any good, but. At the same time, it's very important to preserve and discuss these still because, again, this is this is a film that I literally had never heard about until I did my my research in. Even when I was looking at film lost films in general to cover for this section, this was one I had to dig to find. Mm. It does not even show up on the Wikipedia list of rediscovered lost films. Oh wow! Okay. I, I had to find it by actually like sifting through Murnau's filmography because I what happened was actually there was a Murnau film that was on that list. It was from the same year, 1922, called Nosferatu. Phantom. No, no, <laughs> Phantom. Phantom was another film he made in 1922, which was purportedly lost, according to Wikipedia. But upon my research, I was not finding any credible sources that could actually state that this was yeah, considered okay. definitively lost. And I was getting really sullen because I was ready to cross Murnau off the list of yeah. directors that I was going to be able to cover here until I like flipped through his filmography and I found this film, which on the Wikipedia page for this film does state definitively that it was considered lost. Yeah, so and there's actually compelling evidence and a story to go with it and even a, a famous name that comes up in discussion okay. of the film's restoration. So I was like, okay... There's actual like something coming. Like this was like a saving grace. I felt like you know so, someone mm. swooped down and gave me this this gift of a film that I'm like, oh, thank God, we can talk about Murnau on well, the show now. We can spotlight let, him. Let, let, let's hear it then. Tell me about the losing and finding um, of of set okay, so, before we wrap things up here. So I don't have too much info on how it was lost per se, but I do know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess because so. films just just become lost yeah. because they are physical objects um, that are yeah, limited and, and, yeah yeah and nobody cares for a while sometimes for obvious reasons yeah in case yeah like yeah. And, film. yeah yeah but uh sources conflict but it is consistently stated that this murnau film was presumed lost until 1978 when a print was wow. discovered in the possession of an italian priest who would often <laughs> organize screenings of films at psychiatric institutions hey don't watch this boring movie i've got yeah yeah and so Multiple different sources state this uh, very explicitly. And again, it's not the only film that was found in a psychiatric institution, as, as we might cover cool. later. Uh, so in 1988, collective efforts on behalf of the Cineteca in Milan with the Federal Archive in Koblenz and the Museum 
uh, the film museum in Munich helped to restore this with the expert hand of famed French film critic and filmmaker Eric Romer overseeing Yay. the process. So I don't know if you saw, but his name is on the beginning uh, title I card did, in the film I as did, well. I did, I did, I did, and I was like, that's for my boys right there. Yeah, yeah, so he was, uh, I, I couldn't find any additional information about it, about why Just... he took this on or how involved he was, but he was apparently big in, in seeing this film being restored. Slight, slight Romare aside, um, friend of the show, Calvin and I are trying to come up with a name, like a Metroidvania-style name for the genre that is <laughs> Hong sang Su and, and, and Romare movies. I'm like, there is, like, these two are doing a thing and there needs to be a name for it, so, you know, mm-hmm. we are still searching for that. Yeah, so he was pretty instrumental in seeing it, including preservation of its tinting and hand-colored segments. Yeah. I didn't notice it too much here, but this uh, version that we watched appeared to be a VHS recording of a showing on I know, on, on Arte, on the, on, on the French channel, because I recognized that channel. I was like, I've watched things on Arte. Yeah, that, so so that was interesting, again, to find. But basically, that, that took a lot of digging for me to find. This is not a well-recorded, well-regarded film at all. Again, to a point where other films of Murnau are proclaimed lost and discovered, yeah. even though they weren't. And this was... I guess no one cares this was found. <laughs> I mean, I can see why after seeing it, but I was happy to have discovered and you yeah. know talked about it here as, as much as I can. Yeah. And I think the story about its its discovery, and again, like mm. just, just finding it with an Italian priest in, you know, in the 70s is kind of interesting. Yeah. Very odd, but hey, that's how it goes sometimes. So there, we've got a unique story about the, the discovery and preservation of this film that's really really cool and it's a reminder that that film history is is interesting independently of the films themselves sometimes like the the act of history and and preservation is important because otherwise we we come into that canonizing impulse of of let's only save the things that are good and then whose perspective is it to a good it is important to preserve film as a medium and to make sure we have those things and and to catalogue film as a medium. And if we didn't, then we'd be sitting here speculating about it, about how great it must be, this interesting story about greed in the land that Murnau made, in in the same capacity that we imagine about his adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or this Four Devils film that he made as well that seems very interesting in his American period. Again, all we can sit here is think, and the speculation is always generally more, more spectacular than well, yeah, the film itself. Some films were lost because of scandalous reasons. So we talked about how different from the others was obviously lost because it being actively silenced. But a lot of films are just lost because they're unremarkable and no one cares to keep them around. Um, and that's going to happen as, as as much, if not more frequently, that there is just a lack of care for the preservation of it. As much as then, then there are exciting stories of things being enjoyably lost or destroyed. Yeah, yeah. So this is again it, it, at least it has an interesting story to go mm. along with it it's helpful in kind of painting a wider portrait of Murnau's legacy yeah. seeing these kind of different modes that he worked in seeing he's not just kind of this singular filmmaker yeah. but it's ooh, it was ultimately kind of unexemplary for for us both viewing it I'm glad you got something more out of it than I did I it was a real trial for me to kind of sit through and try and appreciate it as much as I could but I was very at least happy to have a film that we could use to spotlight yeah. the very lengthy, prolific, and uh, impactful career of Murnau here as yeah. perhaps the most significant expressionist filmmaker. I mean, one of the key filmmakers of all time, if you're having the conversation about the key filmmakers, Murnau should come up in that. Yeah. And and it should be noted as well that for, again, for as, as iconic and influential as is, he only has like less than 15-ish films or yeah. so that he made, including including the lost ones, uh, because his career was cut so short in yeah. 31. Uh, early death, yeah. So the survival of a film like this is still very important because of how mm. small that, that filmography ultimately is. So the fact that it was found and preserved is incredibly yeah. important. Yeah, yeah, no, t- totally agree. So while you are looking around yourself, um, as always, I tell you to look out for um, silent films that you may found in all of your recesses. But also, if you could look for Murnau's skull as well, I would really appreciate that. <laughs> um, alas, alas, poor Murnau, I knew him. Um, so if if you can find that, would appreciate this. And when you found that, do report it to the authorities. But while you're doing, also you know, drop us a review, a rating, etc., um, and find us where things are found. You can find David around the streets of Portland or wherever it is, these fancy places he goes to, and his mm-hmm. um, historic writing on the Twin Geeks. Just click on his name on this um, article. That's where you found us, and you can find his writing there on more classic film if that's what you're into. You probably are into that actually, listening to this podcast. You can find my writing on the website, much more contemporary stuff, and you can find my witterings, mutterings, whatever, where I am under Stephen places, but primarily um, patreon.com slash the stacks on film. But that's all I will say about that. 
Any closing thoughts? You want me to hint about next week? Yes, please. You'd be very excited. I'm ready to be excited. Or we'll be talking about perhaps my, my favorite subject I've done any research into this, this season. Okay. The uh, director, Herr Ernst Lubitsch. Yay! Lubitsch week! Yes. Lubitsch um, week. I've been reading my biography of Lubitsch off and on as well and adding more details amidst all the discussion here and watching more Lubitsch films from this time period than anyone else, certainly. I, yeah, I absolutely love Lubitsch. And, uh, you as, are, as you dare I say, a, a Lubitsch. <laughs> I am a Lubitsch. You know, if there, are cum- if there can be Cumberbitches, then we can be Lubitsches. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so that will, that will be exciting. Yeah. Uh, the Wives of Pharaoh, I believe that one's called, or The Loves of Pharaoh. It's one of his historical epics. So maybe less the Lubitsch that you're expecting. Uh, if you want, though, a, a more kind of in-the-mold in comic Lubitsch, I, I can certainly... I might try and get some more Lubitsches in. It's difficult for me, because this is my last week to get in a f- the few kind of like end-of-year Oscar stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but I will try. I've got a friend coming over the weekend who is very film inclined. Um, so I might be like, do you want some Lubitsch movies with me? And maybe he will. Well, if you want some recommendations, I'll be happy yeah. to supply them I of what you can watch. I don't know if you've seen a film. It'll be very interesting. We might, I might oh. rewatch Trouble in Paradise and then, and then go from oh. there. Beautiful. Trouble in Paradise, mm. obviously. Such a, such a classic, such an mm. important film. But Please we'll read be George about Davenport's his... review of Trouble in Paradise. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll be talking about some silent Lubitsch next week. Mm. Some German Lubitsch in Shh. particular. And talking about how he became one of the leading lights of the pre-code and post-code comedies yeah. in Hollywood based on his trajectory in Germany. So. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. As as a, the bits of Lubitsch I've seen, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Excited to learn more. So next time, Lubitsch. Excellent. Well, we will look forward to discussing him then. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stephen. 